lived all your life, I know I have that in my own. And for most of us, it begins in a place often of confusion and lostness. If you look back on your own spiritual journey, you know, to that place where you began, um, sometimes we start out of such a place. And it's been interesting to me years ago as part of my more Jungian training, one of the things I learned somewhere along the way was that pretty much all creation myths begin with chaos. A time when it's dark or the earth and the ocean are all mixed up or whatever and it's, it's very chaotic and out of that chaos comes order. So my understanding is that this is descriptive very much of the human psyche that we come to these places of chaos and disorder and darkness and then out of that disorder and darkness some awakening begins to happen something begins to change and most of us at various points in our lives look around and we go you know what <laughs> what is this what's going on here why am I here what am I doing you know, is, is it, does it make any sense? It hurts a lot, often, and it feels really uncomfortable, and it's just not the way we want it. Sometimes it's even agonizing. We don't get it, you know. It just doesn't, doesn't go smoothly. And it's important in the myth or story of the Buddha <coughs> that in his waking up process, he didn't just... You know, he wasn't just some special being who arrived, waked up. He, he also had to encounter difficulty. And a very, very important part of that story of his awakening is that point at which he encounters sickness, old age, and death. He goes out into the village, and he sneaks out into the village. He has to do it. It's really interesting. And he sneaks out. And there he sees someone who is old and someone who is sick and someone who is dead. He's never seen that before. And that's actually what propels his waking up. The fourth messenger is, of course, the, the monk who comes through, who sort of holds out some sense just in his being, just in his walking by, that maybe there is some other option, some way to see this that um, would allow the Buddha and other and people not to suffer. And so he became a student of suffering. And it's one of my favorite instructions to the beginning of a retreat is to say to people, notice your suffering. Because you will. If you haven't sat a retreat yet, you will suffer for sure. You probably will suffer today, actually. I hope you will. And you know, it's good. I'm gonna yeah. you on that. <laughs> Great, you caught me. You just go right ahead. Because it's when we give our attention to our suffering that we begin to understand it. We begin to see that it has causes and conditions. And we also begin to notice that it's something that we can be aware of. We're not so identified with it. So he became a student of suffering and a seeker of the ending of suffering. You want to know how how can you be in this crazy, mixed up human condition with things like sickness and old age and death and be free? 
and not suffer? It's a very, very good question. And so as he, he practiced for a long time and tried out all the different methods of his age and finally came to that point where he had the very powerful, very deep insight of his own awakening. And then he went on to talk in his early teachings about these repetitive cycles that create suffering where where we don't see clearly and we you know, a whole the whole process of perception takes place and then we get caught in greed and aversion, wanting things to be different from the way that they are. And in that moment of grabbing on with greed and aversion, we start the whole cycle around again. And so over and over again, we are born into that cycle of suffering. And you can understand that as being a many lifetime cycle. That's a fine way to hold it. But if that's not your thing particularly, you're not into many lifetimes, it's a, it's a very apt psychological description. And everyone here knows those cycles. And we've all done those repetitive things that we do over and over again that, you know, you would recognize your own little neurotic thing that you're about to do again and cause the same suffering again and at some point we hope we wake up to it not all of us do I think some of them seem to go on into old age I regret to tell you (laughs) (laughs) hopefully maybe before I depart this earth so, but one of the things that is true is that for many of us, it's that place of suffering <coughs> that finally hurts enough so that we want something to change. We're willing to do something, whatever that something might be. And it's that place sometimes when we are really tired of that contracted, bound place when you pick up the book or you listen to the tape or you come to the meditation class or you go to the retreat or whatever it is that everyone in this room has already done. You made some turning place. And it's, that's the very beginning place of faith, which is part of what leads us out of suffering. Now, so it's a place where we we approach our suffering with a thirst to be free of it. It doesn't mean you stop suffering. I wish it did. You just could see it and then you're done. But it's not true. You just, you begin to see it and then you really have that interest in how do I get free of it. So, you know, it's like in AA, you have to hit bottom before you can actually move towards sobriety. And I have my friend Noah Levine, who teaches in the Dharma Punks world, talks about how he grew up in a meditating family. You know, his father is a, a teacher, a fairly well-known teacher. Um, but Noah didn't wake up until one day he was sitting in juvenile hall and, you know, in jail. And there he was, feeling kind of desperate, and he remembered the instructions on giving your attention to the breath. And he thought, well, why not? 
you know, he was kind of caught. He was clearly caught. <clears throat> and what he was doing wasn't working. And it was a very powerful turning point for him when, when he came to that place. And there's that wonderful story, you know, um, of, with, for Nasruddin, you know, when he's lost his keys and he's out looking in that pool of light under the street light for his keys and his friend comes along and says, what are you looking for? And he said, I'm looking for my keys. And he said, well, where did you lose them? And he said, oh, I lost them. Over there in the bushes, you know. Well, why are you looking here in the light? Well, because it's dark over there. But the darkness is, of course, where the keys are, right? But do we look? We always look where it's light. We forget, you know, that you actually have to go look in the darkness in order to find the keys. So when we turn and we go towards that darkness, towards whatever your suffering is, that's a hugely important place. It's very, very sacred. And it's very often the first step in the path of liberation. And it's not easy because it's often turning against all, you know, we're habitual, we're habitual with sufferers. You know, those cycles are, are described as being repetitive because they are and because we get so caught in them. So that's that first little piece of what is called sadha or faith in Buddhist teaching. And it's 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 not a faith is actually not a good translation because and it has a lot of connotations. Some of you, you know, hear the word faith and, and it immediately brings up, you know, things that you're supposed to believe and you can't really understand how they're true, but you're supposed to believe them anyway. And so a better translation actually is the word conviction. Conviction instead of faith. And, and it's, it's, a it's not a commodity that you either have or don't have, but it's the ability in the end to trust your own deepest experience. So it's, it's, a, it's considered to be something that you begin to know inside yourself. The Buddha, one of the stories about the awakening is that, you know, there he was under the Bodhi tree, he'd been through this incredible process and Mara so this is clearly part of the myth of the Buddha, Mara who's at the tempter in the Buddhist world comes along and says you know what right, what right do you have to think that you're awakened you know, what is this? And the Buddha reaches out and he he touches the earth and he calls the earth to witness that his ability and his right to be free and to trust deeply his own wisdom and insight. So another of the translations of the word sadha is to place the heart upon. That, so we're talking now at that as we begin that path towards wise view of that moment when you can reach out and you put your heart on something like, oh, I'm going to try. You fill in the blank, whatever it is you tried. Meditation, yoga, you know. Did you get a mantra way back then in the 60s when lots of us got mantras? You know, we all, we all we tried various things and, and we had some faith and we made that leap. And it's called bright faith, actually, in, in this list. And it's that falling in love place where you 
you begin to try something and you go, oh, this is this is good. I like this. You know, I want. I'm inspired by it. And, and even though at that point you don't really know it in your deepest being, it's someplace where you're willing to trust. So, in a completely other world, not the world of Buddhist meditation, in 1995, the astronomers who were working with the Hubble Space Telescope decided that what they were going to try to do was see what happened if they trained their scope on what appeared to be an empty patch of sky. As far out, they couldn't see anything in it. And it was apparently devoid of stars and or empty. And there was none so there's nothing in our own galaxy basically that was in the way of seeing this empty patch. And so they were inspired. They, they knew some things. They, they were after all all of them, you know, well trained astronomers. And they they had a hunch, they had a little bit of faith, if you will, that maybe if they looked there long enough and hard enough, they would see something. So they had they had a theory. They were picking up a particular thread, if you were, will, and see what happens if they followed it. So we've all done that, you know. I remember very early on. I think I was doing a little sitting at home at this point, but I hadn't done anything else. Maybe read a little bit of Suzuki Roshi. And, um, so I went down to Asilomar to go to the Transpersonal Psych Conference that happens there every um, summer, which was where I met Jack Cornfield. And I also heard an amazing man whose name is Roger Walsh. And so Jack taught the basics of meditation practice and I got to sit and walk with him just like we're doing here today and here's some basic teaching. And then Roger was the keynote speaker for the day. And Roger, I've come to know him pretty well in the years since then, many years since then, but um, he has the most amazing heart. It's just so open. And he has a passion for meeting and working with the suffering of the world. And he stood up there in front of a thousand or more people and started talking about all of the suffering on the planet. And he talked about all of the wars and all of the starvation and all of the children who are being beaten and the environment. And it was just this long, long list. And after a while, as he went through his list, he began to weep. And I thought, you know, I don't know what he's got, but I want it. I want that, that ability to be so touched by the suffering of the world. And so that was where I was inspired. What happens if I go ahead and look here? These two people who who really inspired me in that weekend. And so you have, we have just enough trust to go ahead when we are inspired that way. We, we pick up the thread and we follow it. So then, the next category in this process is that of what's called verified faith or verified conviction, if you like that word better. So, all of the teachings of the Buddha, all of them, every word of them are meant 
to support the investigation of your own mind and heart. That's all. They are not intended to be something that you are supposed to take and believe. You're supposed to take them and go, huh, I wonder if this is true. If I cling to something, will I suffer? Be my guess. <laughs> I unfortunately have not found it once yet when that one was wrong. You know, I keep hoping, I keep clinging. <laughs> doesn't work. But that's the point, right? After a while, you start clinging and you go, uh-oh, I think I'm clinging and I can see down there I'm going to suffer. So what happens if I begin to let go? That is, after all, what the Buddha teaches. And so you begin to let go, and you go, oh, look at that. I'm not suffering. Cool. And so then you try it again. And in that way, you begin to verify your conviction that these teachings have something to offer. And so that's what the Buddha did. He tried different teachings, he didn't find the freedom that he was seeking in these, these teachings of these masters who were teaching primarily really profound states of concentration and, and they were sort of altered state techniques. And, and the freedom he wanted wasn't in an altered state, you know. So he did what he could. He, he learned what he could from them. He certainly learned a lot about how to work with the mind. And then he let them go because they didn't bring what he wanted. So, you know, that's, to go back to the scope, that's what those men did, men and women. They looked and looked and looked and looked for days and days and days. It was a very audacious, very expensive venture to, you know, just minutes of time on that telescope. It cost thousands of dollars. But they did it anyway because they were really checking it out. They had a theory that they would see something out there if they looked long enough and hard enough. And so they, they were trusting their own experience to see what is there. And in our work, we begin to trust. You know, you sit for a little, and I heard, oh, there are these retreats. Lots of you have heard that. You go on a retreat, you start sitting every day or fairly regularly if not every day you come to day lunch and classes and, and you begin to try it out to see what happens <coughs> when I put these teachings to work when I use them to investigate my own heart and mind and the Buddha says in another place he says don't trust anybody don't even trust me the Buddha isn't that amazing you know because so many so many people put themselves out as teachers and saying, okay, I've got it. You, know, you have to believe me. And the Buddha said, don't even believe me. Try it for yourself. Test it the way then, in those days, you would test a coin. Because if you bit a gold coin, if it was gold, your teeth would leave marks on it. And if it wasn't gold, you could try it on a quarter if you wanted. Just that, you know, and then if you bite into the quarter, wash it first. If you bite into the quarter, it won't leave teeth marks. But if it were a gold coin, it would. See for yourself. See for yourself. Or, you know, another way 
um, is to, you know, another way of trying it is to, to live as if the teachings are true, to try it in that way. So you can be experimental any way that works for you. Now, one of the things to say is, it's a little cautionary note, and the Buddha's really inviting us to be really curious to question teaching. There's a kind of unskillful doubt that can come in that's not so helpful. And that's the place where the mind can get caught in really, really big questions like, where does this all come from? And who made it all? And is there a God? And, you know, how does karma work? And, you know, a lot of things like that that are ultimately unanswerable questions. And the Buddha actually says, you'll go crazy if you try to figure them out. And those, that kind of questioning is not so helpful. It's more about, can we find a way in which we can live in time and space and in this human experience as it is, wherever it came from and whyever it is, and still be free from our suffering? I think it's also really important, and I want to acknowledge all of you for this, that this takes great courage. It's not easy to do this. Sometimes it's easier just to believe something or or just not even to look. And sometimes our practice takes us right to the edge of our capacity. You know, can I sit here one more minute? Can I go into this situation and do my best to speak wisely and to be kind? And we don't know if we can do it. You know, it's very, very scary and it takes a lot of courage. But when we do it over and over again, in the end, there's what's called abiding faith or abiding conviction. And this is where you begin to know for yourself, yes, it works. I know. It's like I tell people sometimes when they ask about daily practice that you get to that point where if you don't do it, it's like you haven't brushed your teeth in the morning. And you know that point in the day if you don't brush your teeth? And you kind of go... Missed something, didn't I? You know, and and it feels like it's not, it's not, you're not settled in your own being. Maybe you said it other times of the day. The morning isn't the requirement, but you, you do. You know, it does help when we do it. And after a while, you know this for yourself. I don't have to tell you. You don't have to read it in a book. You know that your life will be better if you do that. You know that wise speech works. You know that not clinging and letting go leads to an ending or at least a lessening of suffering. And so, you know, in that wonderful story of the Buddha, after he did all of these trainings and he couldn't find the freedom he wanted, he actually picked up a thread of an early memory of a memory of just sitting and being very attentive as he watched his father doing the spring plowing. And that sense of stillness of mind and complete presence. And he followed that thread as he sat there that night under the Bodhi tree. And that was the thread that led him to his full awakening. And our astronomer friends who were following their thread over, you know, many, many weeks of observing this so-called empty patch of sky, ultimately began to get images of thousands and thousands 
and thousands of stars and galaxies many, many billions of light years away from us. It was not empty at all as they looked way, way, way back into the past of the cosmos. And certainly my own experience in my own years of practice now is that I really trust this path. It's not that I don't wobble. It's certainly not that I've come to a complete ending of suffering. But I see how helpful it is to myself and to other people. In the world of (coughs) Christian writing, Paul Tillich talks about a place where we really trust our own practice, we see how deeply true it is, and that we are aligned with our ultimate concern. I like that phrase a lot, that we're aligned with our ultimate concern. So we really see that even sitting itself, comes from the teaching from our sotos and friends, and I love it, sitting itself is an enlightened act. So congratulations. Mm-hmm. We're all here, we're doing something that is enlightened because you know you need to sit. And that knowing is a, an awakened knowing. It's not the all, but it is in itself an, an awakened act to sit. So, I like to do exercises when I teach, and today is my day. <laughs> and we are going to do an exercise. <coughs> So, what I'd like you to do, let's see. Oh, perfect. Groups of three. So, this is some of you are very familiar with this because you've been in committed students' classes with me, and some, for some of you it's new. So, what you're going to do is we're going to be in groups of three, preferably kind of try to bunch up. If some of you came with friends or partners, try not to be with them. Um, but otherwise, you know, as in your neighborhood, find two other people. And each of you is going to do a five-minute con- monologue. So that means you get to talk uninterruptedly. Now, if you need to stop and take a breath and think about what you're going to say next, that's fine. You don't have to keep your mouth going all five minutes. But you have the floor for five minutes. Your two friends their job is to witness what you are saying, what's unfolding out of your own heart and mind. They don't need to respond when you're listening. You don't get to say, oh, that's too bad, or that's great. Um, the person who's speaking doesn't have to be funny. You don't have to make them laugh. You might be funny. It might come out funny, but that's, that's sort of a side thing. Your job is just to let the monologue come out The other two are just to be as mindful and as present as possible to support you in that inquiry into the question that I'm going to give you. When your five minutes is done, and I will keep time for you so you'll know, then you move, the next person does their five minutes and you go around your little circle five minutes apiece, okay? So, what I want you to do is to explore this question of of that bright faith that got you started and whatever amount of following you've done of it. So some of you may have done quite a bit of practice. You can talk about where it became 
verified where you've come to trust it. Some of you may still be at the, wow, this is just happening and I'm so exciting. But, you know, start with the place where you got launched, because that's always a fun thing to talk about. What, what started you? What launched you into the bright faith place? What brought you to this practice? And then go from there, as much as you have time for in five minutes. Is that clear? Are the instructions clear? Inquiry is another <coughs> form of practice. It's a very important form, actually, where you inquire into the nature of your own experience. And it's actually, in my experience, very helpful to do it with witnesses. And so if you're new to it, if you're thinking, oh, I don't really, this is not what I came here to do, I would invite you to try it in the nature of, in the spirit of trying things. And if you don't like it, don't do it again, but um, <laughs> try it for today anyway. Okay? So you'll bunch up in groups of three. And then I will start the timing. <laughs> get yourself settled. I'm going to go get my timer. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.